Okay, go ahead and turn your notebook over. We are every week going to start with this because we're going to remind ourselves why we're here. And you see there the purpose of Wellspring. It is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church and its gospel purpose. That is what we're after here in Wellspring. And to do that, we have three disciplines. The first discipline is discipline one, the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Now, what is the heart? What is our heart? Jamie talked about it some last time. The heart is who you are inwardly before God. It's not a piece of you, like your physical heart is, but your heart, biblically, is you. It's who you are inwardly as God sees you. And what our hearts need more than anything else is God himself. And that's what he's given us through the gospel. He's given us himself. And the place that we bring our hearts to meet with God in the word is in the Bible. And that is why I plan to read through the Bible in a year as our main homework this year. Last time we said to start a Bible reading plan by October 1st. And that might be something you'll want to talk about in your discussion group today, how it's going or questions you have about how to do that in a devotional way. You can talk with your discussion group about that. But we don't end with discipline one. Discipline two is the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. That is what time meeting with God in his word will produce in a believer, a heart for God himself and a heart for the gospel. And the first place that we need to live out our heart for God and his word is where we live. Discipline two is an overflow of discipline one. When our hearts are cared for and they are fixed on Jesus and we've been shepherded by meeting with him in his word, that will impact our home, whatever that situation looks like. And it will impact those who step into our, into our home and those family relationships who live outside our home. Our conversations and our attitude, our service, will reflect that we have met with God through his word. It's going to show in how we treat our roommates, our families. It should have an effect on every household relationship, our husbands, children, parents, brothers, sisters, grandchildren. Remember, discipline two flows out of discipline one. As we shepherd our hearts, we learn more and more about how the gospel transforms every part of our lives and changes our understanding of every circumstance. So then we can be ready and willing to care for our household with that same gospel hope. And then discipline three is ministry with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household. She steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Having a heart that has been shepherded by the word and having been with God, we step into the lives of others in the church and now we know how to help them. When ministering to others, even in next generation with the kids, this is what we can be thinking. We can be thinking, you know, I want to remind them of the gospel. I want to preach it to them and I want to encourage their heart with the truth of God's word. And I want to help them learn to shepherd their own heart with God's word. And we want to encourage one another to care for their household relationships in that light. If we are thinking this way, 
then we have every opportunity to be fruitful in our ministry, in the church, and beyond because we are focusing on God's word and the gospel and the impact that that has on hearts. So those are the three disciplines. We'll review them every week because we want them to become part of how we frame our thinking about our own walk with Christ and our relationships and our service and our ministry. All right, that brings us to the lesson. Last week was really an introduction and an overview of Wellspring. So this is really the first teaching uh, for Wellspring. And this year we're going to begin our teaching with looking at the gospel's impact on our heart. Now you received a diagram when you came in. Today we're looking at the big picture of what the gospel does in the life of a believer. And because the Bible has so much to say about that, we hope you find it helpful to follow along with the lesson by looking at the diagram. That diagram will be on the website as well when you have the links to the homework and the outline and the audio for the lesson. There's a link for that diagram as well. And you can just jot notes all over that diagram to remind you of where the things we talk about belong on the diagram and what part of our life they correspond with. Um, you also have this outline. And this is just my suggestion, but I think for this particular lesson, it's helpful to pull the things out of the verses that we look at and make a list with them and then maybe draw lines to the references that they came from. But I personally found that more helpful when I went back to review what was in the outline. But you can use it however you find it to be helpful. Okay, so let's start with an overview of that diagram. Over on the left side, you see the words unregenerate you. That is man in total depravity. You see at the very top that that is an unmixed condition. The figure is completely gray. The depravity affects every part of this person from the inside out. And then moving to the right, there are two heavy vertical lines with the word event between them. And that event is conversion. It's when we, we become a follower of Christ. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 3 when he said, you must be born again. It's a work of the Holy Spirit and it's accomplished once and for all. It's an event. It's not a process. Nobody is in the process of being born again. It's an event. Now, sometimes when we look back on our own conversion experience, because we don't see the way God sees, we might look back and think it looked like a process and we're not sure of the exact moment. But from God's perspective, in terms of what God is doing and biblically, what we see about regeneration is that it happens as an event. It happens at one moment and then it's true from there on, but it's not a process. But with our diagram continuing to the right, you see up at the top the label mixed condition and below that new creation. And this re represents our life as believers. Regeneration puts us into this new mixed condition once and for all. But what happens in that mixed condition is a day by day process of growing. And that's why it's called progressive sanctification, because it's a process. And that's why you see the shading change as you move to the right. And then there's another vertical line that represents death, which is another unmixed condition, but a very different unmixed condition than we'll see over on the left. And then finally, you see the glorified body, which we get when we're resurrected. Or for those who skip death, 
because they're alive at the rapture, uh, they go straight to a resurrection condition with a glorified body. They're changed directly. Now, if you look back over on the left side at unregenerate you, you'll notice the figure has both an inner man and an outer shell. And that inner man is who we are at a heart level, who we are inwardly. And the outer shell re represents our physical bodies or our members, our hands, our eyes, our mouths. And there is a principle always at work in humanity. Our members always manifest who our inner man is. They give away what we are on the inside. They reveal what we are. In Mark chapter 7, in fact, your outline has the wrong chapter there. The outline, I think, says Matthew. But it should be Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. The heart is the source of all our wicked thoughts, desires, words, and behaviors. And our members is where all of that comes out. So, for example, when we say something careless, we really can't respond with, where did that come from? As if it just came out of nowhere. As if it really didn't reflect what was inside of us. See, Jesus said it came out of our heart. What comes out of us reveals our heart. So that is an overview of where we're going today as we look at the gospel's implications for my heart. And now when we go through this diagram with the outline, we're going to start from the outside and work our way in. We'll talk about the left first, unregenerate man, and then we'll talk about the right, glorified man. And then we'll talk about the event that you see over on the left next to unregenerate man. And finally, we'll talk about the middle of the picture where you see the word process. So I hope that makes sense. We don't want the outline to be confusing since we're not simply working from left to right in the diagram. And we're going to look at all of this so that we better understand how badly we need discipline one. To meet with God in his word every day to get God. Not just knowledge, but to draw near to him so that we are ready to shepherd our hearts all day. See, heart shepherding just begins when we bring our hearts to meet with God in his word. That is preparation for pursuing holiness throughout the day. So let's begin by turning to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I'll just warn you right up front that today's lesson is kind of like drinking out of a fire hose. For those of you who have done Wellspring before, you know these first couple lessons tend to be that way. And the goal here is not to just um, knock you over. Um, but as Scott Maxwell reminds the men in Build, the way you eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So today is a day to take one bite of Wellspring. Take one bite, chew on it, digest it, learn from it, apply it. And you're going to have the outline, you're going to have the notes, you're going to have the diagram to go back and study more as you go along. Um, so as you follow along, turn with me um, as you can. But if you feel like you're getting lost and you're getting behind, just it's fine. Just listen. Just follow along in the way that's most helpful to you. Okay, so we're at Roman numeral one, who you were before Jesus on the outline. Let's look at what God's word says about unregenerate man. 
who we were before Jesus, who anyone is apart from Jesus. This is how God's word describes all of us before the gospel had impacted our lives and made us new. This was our identity apart from Christ. So let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You might want to write this on your outline or make a note of where they fit on the diagram all the way over on the left. That in Ephesians 2, 1, it says we were dead in sins. Verse 2 says we walked in sins. Verse 3 says we lived in the lusts of our flesh. We indulged the desires of our flesh and mind. We were children of wrath. See, our flesh and our mind were in complete agreement. There was no tension between them. And then drop down and look at verse 12 in Ephesians 2. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that was our condition. We were without hope. We were without God. You know, when I lose sight of that, I find that I quit caring about the lost. I quit caring about the lost when I forget that they have no hope. See, it's important to know what was true about this condition and to remember it. See, it grows our love for God and it grows our heart for the lost. Go ahead and turn to Colossians 1 now. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 describe the Christless identity and contrast it with the new identity of a believer. So beginning in verse 13, it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So over on the left, when we were not a believer, we were in the domain of darkness. But God rescued us and transferred us to Jesus' kingdom. That describes what happens at conversion and what's true of the new creation. We have redemption and forgiveness. And we're going to talk about that, about our redemption and our forgiveness as new creations. But right now, let's think about what God has rescued us from, the domain of darkness. We were rescued from the authority and power of darkness, Now, what does it mean to be under the domain of darkness? Well, here's an illustration, and many of you have heard this before, but it's helpful to help us get our minds around just how lost we were. Scott and I celebrated our 20th anniversary with a trip to Hawaii, and we had directions that said, you're almost there when you get past that big cliff, and you'll know you're at a certain beach when the water is on your right. But it got dark. And it was remote, and there weren't many lights, and we couldn't see the signs, and we sure couldn't see the cliff or the water. The directions were meaningless without light. On top of that, it wasn't until the next day when we drove the same route in daylight that we could see just how close that water on our right had been, and that all these little bridges we crossed were actually one way, and there were signs marking where we were supposed to have stopped 
I made sure there was no oncoming, oncoming traffic. But because of the darkness, we had no idea of the dangers through which we had driven. We had not slowed down for the bridges. We had not taken the curbs right on the surf with extra care because we had no idea that we needed to. The darkness blinded us. It made the instructions useless and it blinded us to the dangers we were in. It even blinded us to the cautions that were there for our good. In the same way, those who have not been born again are under the control of darkness. They are spiritually blind. Instructions can't fix their problem. They cannot see the warnings and impending dangers of eternal judgment. They don't see that they're under God's wrath. In fact, a non-Christian doesn't generally see these to be true about herself at all. I didn't. And there's a good reason for that. Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, and deceived. Deceived. That's why we didn't understand how lost we were. Titus 3.3 continues by saying we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So these are more things you can add to your list about our unregenerate condition. Our sin ruled our choices, our attitudes, and our relationships, and we were deceived. Now go ahead and look down at Colossians 1.21, since we're already in Colossians 1. It reads, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, those all describe us before Christ. Alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. See, we didn't know it, but that is what we were. Romans 6 tells us who our master was. Uh, Romans 6 verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. See, we were slaves to sin. And then verse 19 says, We were presenting our members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. We were slaves to sin, and we were taking our members, and remember that just means our outer man, our hands and our eyes and our mouths and our feet and everything that expresses what is in our hearts, and we were presenting all of that to be slaves, to impurity, and to lawlessness, and it just multiplied. Lawlessness bred more lawlessness. That is what we were It was just a cesspool of unrighteousness. So let's summarize some key features of the one who is not in Christ. We're at number two, key descriptions of this old condition. This is a summary of what's true about one who is not a follower of Christ, of what I was, of what every believer used to be. And first, we were in an unmixed condition. There was nothing within us to disagree with what we were doing as slaves of sin. Remember what we saw in Ephesians 2. We indulged the desires of our flesh and our mind. They were in complete agreement. And so therefore there was no fight within. We didn't fight against sin. We did not fight for Jesus. We were dominated by and enslaved to sin. And we were unable to shepherd our hearts away from sin and to God. When we did try to battle sin... The best we could do was to trade one sin for another, but there was no turning to God in it. 
There was no humility. And the whole time we couldn't see that our best efforts were just filthy rags. We weren't earning anything from God but wrath. It was just behaviorism. And just as a side note, this is why we really want to work to shepherd our children's hearts, not just their behavior. We need to help them see where they may be replacing one sin for another. You know, for example, a child might learn not to go up to another child and just take a toy away. They might turn away from selfishness in that way. But if we don't deal with that child's heart, or even if we do deal with that heart, that selfishness may be quickly replaced with self-righteousness because they're just so pleased with themselves that they don't steal toys like all the other children do. But if we shepherd their hearts and we help them see that the self-righteousness is every bit as sinful as the selfishness, we have one more opportunity to point them to the power of Christ's work on the cross so that those who believe can be forgiven and set free from that sin, to be set free from that selfishness and set free from that self-righteousness. But that is a description of our past, our identity before Christ, and that is the bad news. But we need to understand that bad news. We need to understand what our problem is before we'll have any interest in the solution. So that brings us to Roman numeral two, who you will be in Jesus. Now, if we were trying to figure a solution for such a sin-stained heart, we would probably take that heart from an unmixed sinful condition to an unmixed holy, obedient condition with no flaws. But that kind of unmixed condition is something that believers are looking forward to when we die or when we're raptured. So what are we looking forward to? Now we're going to talk about what is over on the right side of the diagram where you have the completely yellow figures. So number one, if you die, go ahead and turn over to Philippians 1. Uh, this is under Roman numeral 2 on the outline. Number one, if you die. And let's notice what Paul says about death for the believer. Beginning in verse 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul looks to death as gain because he will be with Christ. To die is to be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 and 9 say, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Death is to be at home. Where? With the Lord. Home, we often define by who is there. Death for the believer is to be home with the Lord. In verse 9, do you see how that future reality impacts the present? Paul says they prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, as a result of looking forward to being home with Jesus, they make it their ambition to be pleasing to him now, whether at home or absent. Paul is looking to eternity thinking, I know that I will be completely free from sin when I die. 
and that everything I do will be pleasing to the Lord. And so why would I make it my ambition now to live any differently? Why would we? And don't miss what it said about death. It means being home with the Lord. You're going to write that on your outline. Well, number two, when you're resurrected or if you're raptured, um, that's what we want to talk about next. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. So we just saw that when we die, we are at home with Jesus. It is gain. And next, we're going to talk about the resurrection or what happens if you're alive at the rapture. So first, let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. He's talking about believers who've died so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he's saying that God is bringing Jesus back. And when he does, believers who have died but who don't have resurrection bodies yet will come with him. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, not all believers will die before Jesus comes. Some believers, maybe some of us, will still be alive living in these bodies. But those who are alive will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And remember who's with him. It's those believers who have died. And he'll come with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So the believers who've fallen asleep come with Jesus. And their bodies are raised. And the inner man is united with his new resurrection body in the air. And then verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And why do we need to know this? Verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the dead are raised and the living are caught up with them in the clouds and all the believers meet the Lord in the air and we will be with him forever. And 1 Corinthians 15, 51 tells us that we will not all die, but that we will all be changed at the last trumpet. That's the same trumpet we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4. So as those who are alive are caught up, we call that the rapture. Their physical bodies are changed to imperishable bodies, like the resurrection bodies of those who've fallen asleep. Go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, where we'll read more about our condition when we're resurrected. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think about my resurrection the way Paul did. When we look at what Paul in the New Testament thinks about the resurrection, we can see he thought it was a big deal. And so I can see that my view of the resurrection needs to change. I need to soak my heart in what this book says about the resurrection. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only... We are of all men most to be pitied. So let's look at what scripture says about when we're resurrected or raptured. It goes with the right side of the diagram with the completely yellow figures. It's labeled resurrection. We're jumping over to the right before we talk about the middle of the diagram. So 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. 
It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. These verses give us a really good contrast between our bodies now and what they will be. In the middle of the diagram, what we'll talk about next, we have perishable, dishonorable, weak bodies. But what about in the resurrection? We will be raised in an imperishable body, in glory and in power. Verse 44 says it is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Now jump down to verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that's where we are now, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will, will sound, we already read about that trumpet, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. See, the resurrection body is immortal. Verse 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, death's sting is gone in the resurrection. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The resurrection motivates us to be this way, to be steadfast and immovable abounding in the work of the Lord always, to not weary of pursuing godliness. Now turn with me over to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. This passage gives us another look at what happens when Christ returns for us. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. That's our new identity. We are children of God. That's what we're going to talk about next in the middle of the diagram. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now, First John 3, verse 2 is a short little verse, but it is so rich. Regarding our future resurrection identity, it tells us, first of all, that it hasn't appeared as yet what it will be. That's why we don't understand it. See, we really don't have a clue. It's a mystery. But secondly, it does tell us that it will happen when Christ appears. Third, it tells us that we will be like Jesus. And fourth, it tells us why we'll be like Jesus. It's because we will see him just as he is. Praise God. We will see Jesus, and we will be like him. The resurrection of believers, our resurrection, is a big deal. What a hope we have. Understanding something about our future hope of being home with Christ, him coming again and raising us from the dead, giving us resurrection bodies, is really helpful 
in helping us think rightly about our pursuit of godliness now. Look back at 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, why does a bride prepare for her wedding? Is it to somehow earn her groom's affections? Does a woman earn a husband just by planning a wedding? Well, no, of course, it's absurd, right, to even suggest that. A bride prepares her her for her wedding because of the love she and her groom already have for each other. And because of that, she anticipates that day when she will enter into a whole new season of relationship with him. In much the same way, it is not biblical to think that somehow our obedience or our pursuit of godliness earns us God's favor or forgiveness or a right standing with him. Rather, a believer wants to purify herself, wants to supply godliness in her life. Remember, we learned about that at the retreat in 2 Peter 1. Or like we saw in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, she wants to please the Lord and be steadfast because of what Christ has already done in saving her and because of her hope that Christ will appear and that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will be with him forever. Home. So that brings us to number three key descriptions of this condition. First of all, it is an unmixed condition of the very best kind. There is no fight within. There is perfect slavery to God, to righteousness, and to obedience. There's no more need to shepherd our hearts away from sin and to God. And we are home with Jesus forever. Now, how can a person have this kind of hope? As believers, why do we have this to look forward to? How could we ever move out of what we saw over on the left and then have this? Well, it's all because of the gospel. It's the gospel. So, let's talk about that. What is the gospel? We're at Roman numeral three on the outline. Now we get to talk about what God has done for the kind of wretches we were over on the left apart from Christ. This is the best news of all. This is the good news that makes that event on the diagram possible. Now, do you see where that is back over toward the left? It's vertical. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 47. The roots of the gospel are found right here. We're going to see that there's all kind of fruit that grows from these roots. But there are three roots, three foundational truths from which all of the other gospel fruit grows. Scott talked about these same roots in his latest sermon from Acts, where he went through what Paul said about himself. But in Luke 24, Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's spending his last time with the disciples. And Luke tells us, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer, there's the first root, and rise again from the dead the third day, there's the second root of the gospel, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. That is the third root of the gospel. First root, Jesus crucified for sins. That's what's meant when it said he would suffer. Then the second root, Jesus raised from the dead. And then the third root, proclamation of repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, and forgiveness of sins for the one who repents and believes. Those are the three key roots of the gospel. It's what Peter proclaimed. 
to what Paul proclaimed. You've got other references on your outline that you can look up. And it's really interesting just to see those three roots over and over together. So the way a person escapes from the depravity we saw over on the left of the picture and secures the hope of eternity with Jesus and the resurrection that we've just looked at is this. She has looked to Christ's death and resurrection and has believed that Christ's death and resurrection is the only sufficient payment for her sin personally. And she looks away from herself, away from self-rule, self-serving, self-righteousness and any other part of self on which we might rely instead of relying on Christ's work on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against her sin so that she might be forgiven and receive a righteousness that is by faith, not by what she does, and that she might repent from seeking righteousness and joy in anything apart from God himself, turning away from sin, turning to follow Jesus. And that is an event. Make sure you see where that is on your diagram. It's something God brings about. He causes us to be born again, to be regenerated, to be brought from death to life, so that we can repent and believe that what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection is everything we need to have our sins forgiven and eternal life with him beginning now. That is conversion. That is all located in that vertical bar that says event. And that event moves a person from unregenerate to a new creation, from the left side of the diagram into the middle. So we're at Roman numeral four on the outline, who you are in Jesus. Number one, conversion events. Now we're going to see what God's word says is true about a person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see what is always true from conversion onward. All of these begin in that vertical event bar on the picture. And they do continue, but they are not processes. They are truths that begin at conversion as an event. You see that word process in the middle of the diagram, and we're going to talk about that process, but this part of our outline is focusing on our conversion events. If you've been around Grace Bible Church for a while, you might have heard these before. Sometimes we call them gospel realities or grace truths. So they might be familiar, but they cannot be too familiar. We need to weave these truths into our thinking and into our prayers, and we need to preach these to our heart, and we need to remind each other of them, because as we feed on these truths, we will increasingly stand in awe of our God. We will see better and better how much he loves us. In our last lesson last year, Scott Maxwell said, He needs these truths over and over again because his heart is like a sieve. Isn't that so true? I need a continual supply of these truths preached to my heart. I need to remind myself over and over again because I'm very prone to letting them leak out and letting other thoughts take their place. Thoughts that are not Christ-centered and that easily lead to fear, anxiety, hardness of heart, and all kinds of other sin. So turn to Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 with me. The first thing we're going to look at is regeneration. This is when God makes us alive spiritually. Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
God is motivated by the richness of his grace and by his great love with which he chose to love us. He makes the believer alive together with Christ. Not just alive, off over here somewhere, spared from hell, but alive together with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, not just alive together with Christ, but we are also in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are new creatures, and the old things passed away. So, for the believer... What is on the left part of the diagram, that unmixed, filthy condition, is gone. If it's gone, we cannot go back to that dead, unmixed condition. And we're going to see that the foundation for that has nothing to do with us, but on everything that God has done. Now, when a person is regenerated, and that means the same thing as being born again or made alive spiritually, she receives the gift of faith, which enables her to repent and believe the gospel. So now, she's a new creation, and the new creation is in a mixed condition. And that is the whole center of our diagram. It's the gray and yellow figures. Now, usually, when we say new, we think of something clean and unblemished. If I buy a new pair of tennies, I expect them to be nice and clean. I want them to smell good. I want them to have good support. I want them to be perfect. I don't want shoes that have been broken down or scuffed up. But that is not what new means when we talk about being a new creation. What makes it new is that it's not what the old was. The old is gone. What else is true in a believer as a result of the gospel Well, we're still looking at conversion events. Go ahead and turn to Philippians 3, verse 7. Both Romans 1.17 and Philippians 3.9 describe the gospel in terms of a righteousness from God. Romans 1.17 says that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness which is by faith from first to last. That is justification, to be declared righteous, not based on our own merit, but based on faith in Christ's merit. Philippians 3, Paul points to this same righteousness by faith. He's explaining why he counts all things to be rubbish, why he has suffered the loss of all things. And beginning at the end of verse 8, he says he's done all of this so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying that God has imputed, has credited Christ's righteousness to us on the basis of faith. He judges us to be righteous based on Christ's sinless record. Could you hear in Paul's words How precious this righteousness is to him. It's because of this righteousness that he can know Christ and anticipate the resurrection. See, there's Paul talking about our resurrection hope again. That is his passion. It is what drives him. So we've got to ask, do we treasure 
that righteousness. That in Christ, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness by faith from beginning to end. See, there is no place in there, not off here at the beginning and not over here in the end and not wedged somewhere in the middle, for there to be any other kind of righteousness added to this righteousness. See, this is a righteousness that is only dimmed when we attempt to attach any other kind of righteousness to it because it's already perfect righteousness. Does this righteousness drive you to know Christ like it did Paul, to look forward to seeing him, to being home with him forever? We need to meet with God in his word so that we never stop being transformed by what Christ has done for us. So we never forget that all God did for us, he did to reconcile us to himself forever. To tear down the division and the alienation that our sin created between us and him. He wants us to know him. Colossians 3.12 begins by saying, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, and then it lists a bunch of things that we are to put on because of what the gospel has accomplished in us. Because of the position it has given us. Chosen of God. Holy and beloved. God has poured out his affections on us. Ephesians 1.5 says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. We are his beloved adopted children. He has brought us into his family. Now, just listen for a minute. Listen to all of these. These are realities of the gospel in your life, believer. All the references are in your outline. So just listen to this. Romans 8 9 tells us that God, Holy, God's Holy Spirit indwells you. Galatians 2.20 tells you that Christ lives in you. Those verses next to 1 Corinthians 12 tell us that we are members of Christ's body and members of one another and that Christ is the head of the body. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4.16 tells us we have confident access to God. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. See, that is what the gospel did for you. It placed you under grace. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What a measure to use. According to the riches of God's grace, of his unmerited favor that he just chooses to lavish on us. According to that measure, we are redeemed and forgiven. And it's true. It's a fact. Romans 5.9 tells us that we shall be saved from the wrath of God. And Romans 8.1 tells us that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All because of what Christ has done on the cross. These are conversion events. They have only one set of fingerprints on them, as Scott Maxwell says. Only God's fingerprints are on these changes in the life of a believer. 
Well, that brings us to number two, new strengths and abilities in Jesus. Go ahead and turn over to 1 Peter 2, verse 2. In addition to these gospel events, God's word also describes many new strengths in believers. These are new abilities and desires and motivations in the believer. Unregenerate man before Christ had no ability or desire for these things, but believers are in the process of growing in these things. That's why you see that big word process on the diagram. We're talking about this middle section now. And the believer participates in this process of practical sanctification, of growing in holiness, and becoming more like Christ. Just like a newborn baby, she comes into the family, she's loved, and she bears the family name, but she still has to learn how to walk and how to talk. She participates in the process by which she will grow and mature, and so do we. So let's look at some of these verses. 1 Peter 2.2 2 reads, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now what is the command here? Long. Long for what? For God's word. We are commanded to long for God's word, so that by it we will grow in our salvation. Now why does a baby long for milk? Well, it's because it's the only thing that will sustain him and satisfy him. It is the only way he can live and grow and mature into all that he's intended to be. When we embrace that God's provision for our hearts is his word, and we'll look at that specifically in next week's lesson, then we will choose to long for the word, not just to nibble at it, but to long for it. Because it is there that we meet with our God. It is how we live and grow and mature as believers. This is one way God has given us to participate in our growth. To long for the word. Now turn to John 14.21. God has not only called us to obey, but through the gospel he has also enabled us to obey. He has set us free from slavery to sin and all that we saw of that unmixed condition over on the left. He has set us free from slavery to ourselves, to our own will, to our own emotions. Obedience is evidence of that freedom that we are, and that we've been born again. It's the fruit of the gospel's work in a heart. So John 14, 21 reads, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And if we're going to keep his commandments, then we need to know them, don't we? Which means we need to be in the word. Again, that's why we have discipline one. Uh, in Philippians 2.12, Paul commends the Philippians for their obedience when he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Obedience is evidence of genuine love for Jesus, and it is how we participate in working out our salvation. Now, when I hear that, I can be tempted to think, I better get with it. I better go off and, and get some obedience going. And my mind starts to head down a sort of works-oriented view of righteousness. Can't we fall into that? But notice that we're looking at this new ability to obey after we have looked at the conversion events, the gospel realities. 
And if you look for it in your New Testament, for example, in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 and 2 Peter 1 and Titus 2 and Titus 3 and on and on and on, you will find that the commands to believers are embedded with declarations about the gospel, reminding us of who we are because of the gospel and how the gospel has transformed us. These commands were never designed to be something that we just grab hold of and we run off and we take care of on our own, apart from Christ, in our own flesh. That is why Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, see, we don't obey by the flesh. We obey as ones who are alive in Christ. We obey as those who are looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face as our King, as our Master, and as the Heavenly Bridegroom of the Church. Don't you want to be ready for that? To live out what He's already done for you? So since obedience is a new strength and ability that every believer has, that means God has equipped us to participate in this process of growing by obeying every New Testament command. But do you ever find yourself thinking as if you don't really believe that? You know, there can be areas of our lives where we just get comfortable with living in disobedience, where we allow ourselves to think we can't obey when we really won't obey. We think it's too hard, but I really want to encourage you from God's word. 1 John 5, 3 says, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's a truth we need to preach to our hearts too, isn't it? Remember, we've already seen that God says that we are in a new condition in the sense that it's nothing like the old. Who we are now is a mixed condition. We have the ability to resist sin, to turn away from sin. We never had that ability over on the left before Christ. And remember, we can never go back to that condition. 2 Corinthians 5.17 said the old is gone. Now will we still go back to sin that's still in us? Is there still a residue of the old man that likes to hang on? Yeah, every day. But we cannot go back to an unmixed condition in which we never resisted sin. Why can't we? Because of what God did for us. There is no crack in that wall, in that event wall, that salvation and conversion wall there on your diagram. There's no way to just bump into it and stumble back through that wall and get back to that unmixed condition. He made us into something new. He put his spirit into us. He put his son in us, in each of us individually. We are each something brand new. We're flawed. We're mixed in our condition, but we're brand new. And he's given us everything we need in order to live this life in the gospel now. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That is a great description of how the love of Christ in the gospel when he died in our place, takes hold of the life of a believer and controls us and drives us to not live for ourselves but for him. 
That is gospel-driven obedience and godliness, being controlled by the love of Christ in the gospel. Hebrews 6.10 talks about believers who are known for their love for God. And we already saw that that's intertwined with obedience. When we feed our love for God, our obedience grows. Because it's hard to love something that the one you adore hates. It's hard to love sin when we love and adore the one who hates that sin, who died for that sin. I hope this is helping to give us all a fresh understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Not only are those conversion events true, those gospel realities, but so are these new abilities to participate in the process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus. We participate. God has chosen us and enabled us to grow and to obey and to love him. Consider what grace God has shown in enabling us to obey his commands. The old man had no desire for this. Here's what Matthew 22 down to 1 Peter 5 on the outline tell us we can do as a new creation. We can love our neighbor and our enemy. We can forgive. We can be thankful. We can repent. We can be honest. We can be diligent. We can be humble. Before, we couldn't. We could never obey this way before Christ. We didn't want to, and we loved it that way. But now we can. Why? Because he's made us into something brand new that we never were before. We no longer need to obey from a fear of punishment or to get something that we want. We can obey because God is God, and it is right for him to rule our lives. And because God has made us into a new creation who wants to please him. We can obey because he's given us his own Holy Spirit to live in us. 1 Timothy 1.15. Go ahead and look that reference up in your Bible. This is perhaps one of the most essential blessings God gives in salvation, the ability to see ourselves more accurately. It says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Those are the Apostle Paul's words. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament, who laid down his life to make the gospel known and to establish the church throughout the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul declared himself to be the foremost sinner. Wow. If Paul, what about you? What about me? So there is a paradox. On one hand, the believer is growing in obedience and holiness. And on the other, she is seeing more and more of her own sinfulness. But that's how it is, isn't it? It may seem strange to consider the ability to see our own sinfulness as a strength. But if we don't see our own sinfulness, how much can we possibly treasure the gospel? We read it in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Believers, we need to thank God that he has enabled us to see our own sin. We need to ask him to help us see it more. Because only in understanding that we, like Paul, are the foremost sinners, will we understand that when we come to God, we are not doing him some kind of a favor. We're not earning something for ourselves. 
No, the more we understand that we are the foremost sinner, the more we understand how desperate we are for God and how much he loves us. See, if we get this, we probably won't need an accountability partner to get us in the word every day. Now, I am all a-okay. If you want an accountability partner, that's great. But see, when we get a hold of understanding our own sinfulness, we don't... We don't have to try to pray because we, when we understand that we're the foremost sinners, we're going to want to cling to Jesus like a drowning man clings to a life raft. Nothing will be able to peel us away from him. So let's go ahead and look back at the diagram. We've talked about the roots of the gospel and conversion events, and we've talked about the gospel's work as a process, and we've looked at new abilities of the new creation. So when we start off as believers, you see on your chart how that guy on the left, he's a little more gray than he is yellow. And that's what we look like when we first get saved. Hopefully, as we grow in Christ, we're becoming more and more like Jesus. and We're becoming more and more holy. We're doing different things with our outer members now than we did before as our inner man is being renewed. 2 Corinthians 4.16 talks about that. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, and that's the outer part of your diagram on those figures, that shell, though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. See, this mixed condition is a renewable condition. That condition over on the left could never be made new as it was. There was nothing to renew. It was dead. But this new creation needs to be renewed. It doesn't need to be remade, but it needs to be renewed. And that renewal is a process. And if you're a brand new believer and you're like that guy over there on the left who's mostly gray and you're discouraged that you're not more like that guy who's a little more yellow, remember that big word up above. It is a process. And you do participate. But it is a process. And we need to remember that when we're shepherding our children and in all our relationships in the body. Believers, we all have the same righteousness. It's Christ's. We don't add anything to it. And when that is what we treasure, then we rejoice over every bit of evidence that God's grace is at work to renew. And so we've looked at two aspects of our mixed condition as believers. First, the gospel events, things that became true of us because God regenerated us through Jesus Christ. And second, new strengths and abilities God has given us to participate in the process of sanctification. But that is not all that we need to know. We've seen a lot of encouraging realities and abilities that are fruit of the gospel roots we started with. But every believer knows that following Christ is not always easy. Obedience can be a struggle. It can be a fight to get in God's word every day and to grow in holiness here in this middle part of the diagram in our mixed condition. We've seen that in some of our passages, that our bodies are perishable, they're weak, they're natural, they're earthy. So let's identify from the word some of our weaknesses, even as believers. Now, this might sound obvious. No one here would probably try to convince anyone else that we don't have some weaknesses, some ongoing struggles with sin. But even though we know it, we might not think about them biblically. Sometimes we get so weighed down over our weaknesses, so discouraged, that we get stuck there. Like we think that now that we're saved, we just shouldn't have such a struggle with sin, right? Or we can get numb to our weaknesses and not be intentional and faithful about battling those weaknesses and sins. 
But the fact that we can battle sin is a good thing. We had no desire to battle sin before we were saved. We didn't have any desire to seek God. So turn with me to Colossians 2.8. We need to understand our weaknesses so that we can respond to them biblically, with the gospel, with all the tools God has given us for fighting sin and for growing in holiness. And as we look at these, it's so important to remember where we started. We have a positional righteousness by faith that never changes. These weaknesses cannot cancel what God has done for us in salvation, and they cannot cancel the enabling grace he has given us to participate in our sanctification. In fact, weaknesses should only make us more thankful for what God has done for us in the gospel. So let's read Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul had to warn the Colossian believers not to be deceived. They were not immune to that just because they were new creations. And we are not either. The world's way of thinking, the world's principles, the world's traditions, they can be captivating. They tend to draw us in. And Paul says that we need to battle that we have to battle and guard against in a very intentional way against being taken captive and deceived. See to it that this doesn't happen to you, he says. Listen to how Peter tells us to fight in 1 Peter 1.13. He says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice how looking to our future hope is part of our equipping for battling sin right now. We have seen that a lot today, haven't we? And don't miss Peter's command to prepare our minds. That is part of what's happening when we get into the word. We are preparing our minds for action so we are protected from the lies all around us. No matter where we are reading in scripture, we can look for what it says about God and his character and sin. We can look at what it says about those who love God and those who don't. We need to take the truth of God's word and use it to prepare our mind for action so that we are not taken captive by worldly thinking and ideas. In addition to these warnings against being deceived, Galatians warns against legalism and abusing freedom. 1 John 2 warns believers against loving the world. In 2 Peter 2, believers are warned against false teachers. And Hebrews 12 tells us that we can be hindered and entangled by sin. See, sin only knows how to dominate. As long as we are in this mixed condition, it will always seek to entangle us and hinder our walk with Christ. The letters to the churches in Revelation show us people in the church who left their first love for Jesus, who were involved in immorality, and who were self-confident and proud. Do you see why we must shepherd our hearts, why we drag ourselves out of bed in the morning and find a quiet spot where nobody else is and open our Bibles and pray. See, this is why we must pray, God, I need you so badly. I have your word open so that I can draw near to you because I need you today. We say that because we're weak. Sin can make our heart, our inner man, become cold. It can make us become numb to Jesus. It can never turn us back into that old man on the left of the diagram, but we can become indifferent to Jesus if we do nothing. 
if we do nothing with our soul, if we do nothing with our heart, we will drift into coldness. We will become entangled in sin. We will become indifferent to sin. And the next thing you know, we'll be best friends with that sin. And when someone tries to talk to us about it, we will be defensive about our sin. We can become that. And so we must fight to shepherd our heart every day. We get up and we remind ourselves of what God did for us in the gospel. And we remind ourselves of what we once were. And we remind ourselves that we need to be renewed. And we remind ourselves of our hope. And we pray, God, make my heart warm toward you today. See, we don't have to feed sin for it to grow. We don't have to feed it. Just crows all by itself. But we do have to work. We have to labor to pursue Jesus, to know Jesus in a relationship way. And for our relationship with him to grow and to be more intimate and to have the mind of Christ. We have to work to grow in holiness of life and to become obedient. And so that is why we start with discipline one. We shepherd our heart to the word of God, to meet with the God of the word. So let's summarize some key descriptions of this new condition We've seen that this is a mixed condition in which we fight against sin. You can see the quote there in the outline. Our new life in Christ is just that. New life. A glorious fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil is at its heart and one of the clearest signs of our union with him. See, you have the Spirit in you, and the Spirit is helping you fight against your flesh. Praise God, we live in a condition in which we can fight. We can fight against sin. We can fight for holiness and for obedience. And we can fight to know Jesus. Why? Because of everything that God did in the gospel to make us this way right now. We can fight. We must. We've been given everything we need to fight. We were created according to God's design. We are his workmanship. He has given us his spirit. What more could God give us to help us fight against sin than what he has given us? He's given us his word. He has given us himself. You can see there on your outline that another key characteristic of the new creation is that we can still get entangled in sin. But being entangled in sin is not the same thing as being enslaved to it or being under the dominion of it. We can get entangled, and we do, but we can be set free from that entanglement. The next characteristic is that we are enslaved to God. See, we have a new master. And so now we can be slaves of righteousness and obedience. And so you see it there. We are able to shepherd our hearts away from sin to God. We are in a renewable condition. We will conclude now with turning to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Why is this creation, this new creation, so mixed? We are loved so lavishly in the gospel. We are so completely transformed that no part of the old man remains and the old is gone. And yet, we are so very weak. We are so prone to sin. We are so prone to wander. But God tells us why. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 begins, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness. He's referring to Genesis 1 and creation. He's saying that it's the creator is the one who has shown in our hearts. Why? To give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. He has shown into our hearts 
so we would understand the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's talking about the gospel. This is conversion. But verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are earthen vessels with a treasure inside. That is a mixed condition. Before we were just earthen vessels, but now we're earthen vessels with a treasure inside. And now this is the key. Why did God do it this way? Verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. God designed it this way to display the surpassing greatness of his power. God in his holiness, in his glory, determined that in saving us, that he would put us into this mixed condition where we will still sin so that as we draw near to him and depend on him and as we battle sin and say no to sin and repent when we do sin, his power is seen in a way that it never would have been had he saved us straight into glory. God did not work salvation this way to make life difficult for us or to make life harder for us. He made life better for us. The fact that we are fighting against sin shows us daily how badly we need Jesus. And that is so much better than when we could not see our need for him. And we didn't even want to fight against sin. Isn't that helpful to understand? In the midst of battling sin, we can actually be encouraged that we are battling it. And God is using the battle to make us more like his son. The fight is evidence of new life. Remember, there was no battle before Christ. Now, why did God put us in a condition that needs to be renewed? Because it gives him the opportunity to display the surpassing greatness of his power as we battle sin. And so we must. And why can we even do that? Because of all of this that we've seen today. And that is why we started with this, because this is the foundation under why we shepherd our hearts. Why we even can. Why we need to. We do have the ability to resist temptation and to pursue Christ and to live lives of worship and service and obedience to God. But not in our own strength. We live in weak flesh. Our spiritual growth and holiness is dependent upon our reliance on Christ and His Spirit and His Word. Not on ourselves so that the greatness of our God is displayed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, it is living and it is active. It's powerful. It is piercing. Oh, Lord, it is sufficient to train us in godliness. Lord, please let your word bear fruit in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.